Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, a Popular Outline by V. I. Lennon, published by New Outlook Publishers. Preface The pamphlet here presented to the reader was written in the spring of 1916 in Zurich. In the conditions in which I was obliged to work there, I naturally suffered somewhat from a shortage of French and English literature and from a serious dearth of Russian literature. However, I made use of the principal English work on imperialism, the book by J. A. Hobson, with all the care that, in my opinion, that work deserves. This pamphlet was written with an eye to the czarist censorship. Hence, I was not only forced to confine myself strictly to an exclusively theoretical, specifically economic analysis of facts, but to formulate the few necessary observations on politics with extreme caution, by hints in an allegorical language, in that accursed Aesopian language, to which Tsarism compelled all revolutionaries to have recourse whenever they took up the pen to write a legal work. It is painful, in these days of liberty, to reread the passages of the pamphlet which have been distorted, cramped, compressed in an iron vice on account of the censor. That the period of imperialism is the eve of the socialist revolution. That social chauvinism, socialism in words, chauvinism in deeds, is the utter betrayal of socialism complete desertion to the side of the bourgeoisie. That this split in the working class movement is bound up with the objective conditions of imperialism, etc. On these matters I had to speak in a Slavish tongue, and I must refer the reader who is interested in the subject to the articles I wrote abroad in 1914-17, to 17, a new edition of which is soon to appear. In order to show the reader in a guise acceptable to the censors, how shamelessly untruthful the capitalists and the social chauvinists who have deserted to their side, and whom Kautsky opposes so inconsistently, are on the question of annexations, in order to show how shamelessly they screen the annexations of their capitalists, I was forced to quote as an example, Japan. The careful reader will easily substitute Russia for Japan and Finland, Poland, Courland, the Ukraine, Kiva, Bokhara, Estonia, or other regions peopled by non-great Russians for Korea. I trust that this pamphlet will help the reader to understand the fundamental economic question, that of the economic essence of imperialism, for unless this is studied, it will be impossible to understand and appraise modern war and modern politics. Preface to the French and German editions. 1. As was indicated in the preface to the Russian edition, this pamphlet was written in 1916 with an eye to the Tsarist censorship. I am unable to revise the whole text at the present time, nor perhaps would this be advisable, since the main purpose of the book was and remains to the present on the basis of the summarized returns of irrefutable bourgeois statistics and the admissions of bourgeois scholars of all countries, a composite picture 
of the world capitalist system and its international relationships at the beginning of the 20th century, on the eve of the First World Imperialist War. To a certain extent, it will even be useful for many communists and advanced capitalist countries to convince themselves by the example of this pamphlet, legal from the standpoint of the czarist censor, of the possibility and necessity of making use of even the slight remnants of legality which still remain at the disposal of the communists, say in contemporary America or France, after the recent almost wholesale arrest of communists in order to explain the utter falsity of social pacifist views and hopes for world democracy. The most essential of what should be added to the censored pamphlet I shall try to present in this preface. 2. It is proved in the pamphlet that the War of 1914-18 to was imperialist, that is, an annexationist, predatory war of plunder on the part of both sides. It was a war for the division of the world, for the partition and repartition of colonies and spheres of influence of finance capital, etc. Proof of what was the true social or rather the true class character of the war, is naturally to be found not in the diplomatic history of the war, but in an analysis of the objective position of the ruling classes in all belligerent countries. In order to depict this objective position, one must not take examples or isolated data. In the view of extreme complexity of the phenomena of social life, it is always possible to select any number of examples or separate data to prove any proposition. But all the data on the basis of economic life in all the belligerent countries and the whole world. It is precisely irrefutable summarized data of this kind that I quoted in describing the partition of the world in 1876 and 1914 in chapter 6, and the division of the world's railways in 1890 and 1913 in chapter 7. Railways are a summation of the basic capitalist industries, coal, iron, and steel, a summation and the most striking index of the development of world trade and bourgeois democratic civilization. How the railways are linked up with the large-scale industry with monopolies, syndicates, cartels, trusts, banks, and the financial oligarchy is shown in the preceding chapters of the book. The uneven distribution of the railways, their uneven development sums up, as it were, modern monopolist capitalism on a worldwide scale. And this summary proves that imperialist wars are inevitable under such an economic system as long as the private property and the means of production exists. The building of railways is a simple, natural, democratic, cultural, and civilizing enterprise. That is what it is in the opinion of the bourgeois professors who are paid to depict capitalist slavery in bright colors, and in the opinion of petty bourgeois Philistines. But as a matter of fact, the capitalist threads, which in thousands of different intercrossings bind these enterprises with private property and the means of production in general, have converted this railway construction into an instrument for oppressing a thousand million people in the colonies and semi-colonies, that is, 
more than half the population of the globe that inhabits the dependent countries, as well as the wage slaves of capital and the so-called civilized countries. Private property based on the labor of the small proprietor, free competition, democracy, all the catchwords with which the capitalists and their press deceive the workers and the peasants are things of the distant past. Capitalism has grown into a world system of colonial oppression and of the financial strangulation of the overwhelming majority of the population of the world by a handful of so-called advanced countries. And this booty is shared between two or three powerful world plunderers armed to the teeth, America, Great Britain, and Japan, who are drawing the whole world into their war over the division of their booty. 3. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, dictated by the monarchist Germany, and the subsequent, much more brutal and despicable Treaty of Versailles, dictated by the so-called democratic republics of America and France, and also by so-called free Britain, have rendered a most useful service to humanity by exposing both imperialism's hired coolies of the pen and petty bourgeois reactionaries who, although they call themselves pacifists and socialists, sang praises to Wilsonism and insisted that peace and reforms were possible under imperialism. The tens of millions of dead and maimed left by the war, a war to decide whether the British or German group of financial plunderers is to receive the most booty. And those two peace treaties are with unprecedented rapidity opening the eyes of the millions and tens of millions of people who are downtrodden, oppressed, deceived, and duped by the bourgeoisie. Thus, out of the universal ruin caused by the war, a worldwide revolutionary crisis is arising which, however prolonged and arduous its stages may be, cannot end otherwise than in a proletarian revolution and in its victory. The Basel Manifesto of the Second International, which in 1912 gave an appraisal of the very war that broke out in 1914, and not of war in general, there are various kinds of wars, including revolutionary wars, this manifesto is now a monument exposing to the full the shameful bankruptcy and treachery of the heroes of the Second International. That is why I reproduce this manifesto as a supplement to the present edition. And repeatedly, I urge the reader to note the heroes of the Second International are as assiduously avoiding the passages of this manifesto which speak precisely, clearly, and definitely of the connection between that impending war and the proletarian revolution, as a thief avoids the scene of his crime. 4. Special attention has been devoted in this pamphlet to a criticism of Kautskyism, the international ideological trend represented in all countries of the world by the most prominent theoreticians, in quotes. The leaders of the Second International, Otto Bauer and company in Austria, Ramsay MacDonald and others in Britain, Albert Thomas in France, etc., etc., and a multitude of socialists, reformists, pacifists, bourgeois democrats, and parsons. This ideological trend is, on one hand, a product of the disintegration and decay of the Second International, and on the other hand, the inevitable fruit 
of the ideology of the petty bourgeoisie, whose entire way of life holds them captive to the bourgeois and democratic prejudices. The views held by Kautsky and his like are a complete renunciation of those same revolutionary principles of Marxism that that writer has championed for decades, especially, by the way, in his struggle against socialist opportunism of Bernstein, Miller-Land, Henman, Gompers, etc. It is not a mere accident, therefore, that Kautsky's followers all over the world have now united in practical politics with the extreme opportunists through the Second or Yellow International and through bourgeois coalition governments in which socialists take part. The growing world proletarian revolutionary movement in general, and the communist movement in particular, cannot dispense with an analysis and exposure of the theoretical errors of Kautskyism, the more so since pacifism and democracy in general, which lay no claim to Marxism whatever, but which, like Kautsky and company, are obscuring the profundity of the contradictions of imperialism and the inevitable revolutionary crisis to which it gives rise, and still very widespread all over the world. To combat these tendencies is the bounden duty of the party of the proletariat, which must win away from the bourgeoisie the small proprietors who are duped by them and the millions of working people who enjoy more or less petty bourgeois conditions of life. 5. A few words must be said about Chapter 8, Parasitism and the Decay of Capitalism. As pointed out in the text, Hilferding, ex-Marxist, and now a comrade in arms of Kautsky, and one of the chief exponents of bourgeois reformist policy in the independent Social Democratic Party of Germany, has taken a step backward on this question compared with the frankly pacifist and reformist Englishman, Hobson. The international split of the entire working class movement is now quite evident, the second and the third internationals. The fact that armed struggle and the civil war is now raging between the two trends is also evident. The support given to Kolchak and Denikin in Russia by the Mensheviks and social revolutionaries against the Bolsheviks. The fight the Shidemans and Noskas conducted in conjunction with the bourgeoisie against the Spartacists in Germany, the same thing in Finland, Poland, Hungary, etc. What is the economic basis of this world historical phenomenon? It is precisely the parasitism and decay of capitalism, characteristic of its highest historical stage of development, i.e. imperialism. As this pamphlet shows, Capitalism has now singled out a handful, less than one-tenth of the inhabitants of the globe, less than one-fifth at a most generous and liberal calculation, of exceptionally rich and powerful states which plunder the whole world simply by clipping coupons. Capital exports yield an income of eight to ten thousand million francs per annum at pre-war prices and according to pre-war bourgeois statistics. Now, of course, they yield much more. Obviously, out of such enormous super-profits, since they are obtained over and above the profits which capitalists squeeze out of the workers of their own country, it is possible to bribe the labor leaders in the upper stratum of the labor aristocracy. That is just what the capitalists of the so-called advanced countries are doing. 
They are bribing them in a thousand different ways, direct and indirect, overt and covert. This stratum of workers turned bourgeois, or the labor aristocracy, who are quite Philistine in their mode of life, in the size of their earnings, and in their entire outlook, is the principal prop of the Second International. And in our days, the principal social, not military, prop of the bourgeoisie. For they are the real agents of the bourgeoisie and the working class movement. The labor lieutenants of the capitalist class. Real vehicles of reformism and chauvinism. In this civil war between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, they inevitably, and in no small numbers, take the side of the bourgeoisie. The Versailles against the communards. Unless the economic roots of this phenomenon are understood and its political and social significance is appreciated, not a step can be taken toward the solution of the practical problems of the communist movement and of the impending social revolution. Imperialism is the eve of the social revolution of the proletariat. This has been confirmed since 1917 on a worldwide scale. N. Lenin, July 6, 1920. Introduction During the last 15 to 20 years, especially since the Spanish-American War of 1898 and the Anglo-Boer War of 1899 to 1902, the economic and also the political nature of the two hemispheres has more and more often adopted the term imperialism in order to describe the present era. 1902, a book by the English economist J.A. Hobson, Imperialism, was published in London and New York. This author, whose point of view is that bourgeois social reformism and pacifism, which in essence is identical with the present point of view of the ex-Marxist Karl Kautsky, gives a very good and comprehensive description of the principal specific economic and political features of imperialism. In 1910, there appeared in Vienna the work of the Austrian Marxist Rudolf Hilferding, Finance Capital. In spite of the mistake the author makes on the theory of money, and in spite of a certain inclination on his part to reconcile Marxism with opportunism, this work gives a very valuable theoretical analysis of the latest phase of capitalist development, as the subtitle runs. Indeed, what has been said of imperialism during the last few years, especially in an enormous number of magazine and newspaper articles, and also in resolutions, for example, of the Chemnitz and Basel Congresses, which took place in the autumn of 1912, has scarcely gone beyond the ideas expounded or more exactly, summed up by the two writers mentioned above. Later on, I shall try to show briefly, and as simply as possible, the connection and relationships between the principal economic features of imperialism. I shall not be able to deal with the non-economic aspects of this question, however much they deserve to be dealt with. References to literature and other notes which perhaps would not interest all readers are to be found in the footnotes.